And now it's my pleasure to welcome Hazel Seltzer Khan. She's a, uh, a host of two talk radio shows at WPKN, Tidings and North Fork Works. She's also the former news director here at WPKN. Hazel, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're going to be talking about what has been described as an evocative memoir, a complex and important piece of history, and a timely story well told, if I'm quoting correctly from the back of your newly released memoir. But the title itself, I think, explains why this work has piqued so much interest. A House in Lahore, Growing Up Jewish in Pakistan. And Hazel, thanks again for being here. I just uh, wanted to mention on a personal note that because I'm a bit of a plodding reader, due in part to the fact that I can never seem to find the right reading glasses, and because I have so much reading to do, I have a tendency to skim books and articles when I'm preparing for interviews. Well, I must say that your book is positively unskimmable. <laughs> it cries out for careful reading, you know, simply because the language is so well-crafted and there are so many droll observations that seem to spin out of your mind with ease in, in nearly every sentence. So I've been pondering how to characterize this engrossing book. It's an odyssey, I guess. It's a, a story of refugees and refuge. It's an epic tale of a young woman's literal journey and her journey of transformation and a story of exile and return. There's a bunch of things there, but Hazel, how would you characterize this remarkable memoir? Well, I certainly wouldn't characterize it as remarkable, of course, <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, you live something that's never the same as when you hear it told. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm grateful for having had a pretty tempestuous life. It was a pretty comp. It was complex, it was demanding, it was confusing. And what, what it sort of ended up leaving me, where it ended up leaving me is really in a place where I just, I will never feel comfortable. I will never feel belonging or feeling at home. But I really, really want to emphasize that that is not a terrible thing. It's not a terrible thing at all. It's just sometimes life, doesn't provide you with, you know, eider down blankets and, and soft mat mattresses. So I don't feel it's been a tough life. It's just been a very demanding life. And, um, and I'm really surprised in many ways how interested people are in, in, in the story. Honestly, I didn't think there would be so much interest. And so partly because of that, I didn't even bother to look for a, an agent or a publisher. I just decided to do it myself because I really didn't think that, you know, they'd be falling over themselves to offer me contracts. You've discovered now that there is a lot of interest. But I wonder, you know, this is a very complex and interesting story with many, many phases and chapters. But I wonder if it might make sense to begin by having you tell us the story of how your parents left Nazi Germany and Poland and wound up seeking refuge in British India, where eventually your parents and your entire family were declared enemy aliens and interned for a period of years, uh, mm -hmm. awaiting the end of the war. 
Tell us a little bit more about that. How harrowing was their journey to India and and the internment that followed? Well, you know, they were they were they didn't know each other till they eventually met in Rome. They actually met very briefly in a somewhere some queue somewhere in Berlin, but it's not important. What's important is that they both ended up. My mother was born in Germany, the daughter of you know real bourgeois people. Uh, and from they were and both my parents obviously were Jewish, but the the Jewishness of my mother's was very, this very enlightened sort of non they didn't take it very seriously being Jewish. My father, on the other hand, came from a very highly orthodox uh, family, and he didn't even know Hebrew or German till he was he spoke Yiddish, and then eventually he left all of that and became. A, a physician, as as did my mother, so they they both were studying uh, uh, medicine in Germany. My father in Düsseldorf and and Cologne, and my mother in Heidelberg and Berlin. And in 1933, they were born in 1909 and 1910. So at the age of 23, they were in the middle of their studies, and Hitler decreed that Jews were no longer allowed to study medicine. So they had to leave immediately, pretty much, and they both, they found that they were able to continue, uh, to transfer their credits to either Denmark or Italy, and independently of each other, they both chose Italy, and they met in Rome, and then eventually got married. And then in 1937, they, um, they, want, they finished their studies, and they were going to move on, and all of my family, my both sides of the family had moved to Palestine, as it was then. But they decided they didn't want to. They, were, they considered themselves internationalists, internationalists. And they, um, they, so they, decide, some, they met a, 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 a priest from the Vatican who said to them, you, you're much, don't, don't, go to, don't go to Palestine. Everybody goes there. Go to India. They need European doctors in India. India at that time was the British Raj, was, it was occupied by the British. So my father went first to sort of basically look for a place to live and work in India. He didn't even speak English at the time. And my mother needed another six months to finish her studies. So he started off in Ceylon, he, which was, as it was then, Sri Lanka, as it is now. And he just just took trains and... I don't know what he took. He didn't even know what he was doing, but he found he moved all the way through India, always looking, going to in large towns like uh, uh, just large towns like Delhi and Bombay and all these places, looking for somewhere where he could basically continue his medical career. And nobody wanted him. They said, no, 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 just go on, go on. We don't need you here. The last German doctor who tried to settle here, he killed himself. Don't just move on. In the end, he somebody said, but somebody then told him, go to Lahore. So Lahore um, was a very wonderful choice. And all kinds of wonderful things happened there in the book, and I won't belabor them now. But so at the age of so then my mother came over from, from Rome, from Italy, three, six months later, and they settled in Lahore, and they started a, a practice. And then in 1940, on my father, uh, sorry, 1940, on December 5th, just last week, 100 and something years ago, my father, um, no, 100 years ago, but my, my father was, 
in the shower and my mother called to him and said, there's some police out here. They want to see you. It was his, it was his 31st birthday. And it was the British police. They wanted to arrest him as an undesirable alien or as an enemy alien because because they'd had, my father was born in what had been Poland. He had a, pass, a Polish passport. My mother became Polish by marrying him. And the Polish, again, the Poland, Polish gov- government also decreed, as did the Nazis, that Jews, and particularly anybody who hadn't really grown up in Poland, who didn't know the language, didn't know the culture, they were not considered Polish anymore, and, and they were not allowed to keep their Polish nationality. So that, for that reason, they were, they were called en- enemy aliens, they were called stateless, many names. And that allowed the British then to intern our family. I was not even two. My brother was not three months old. And we went, we were taken to these first one and then another internment camp in southern India, not southern really, more near, near Bombay. And we were there for five and a half years till we were released in 1946 to Lahore. Do you have memories of that internment situation? I do. I have, I don't have serious, long, longitudinal, you know, stories, but I have lots of of little bits and pieces, the way memories are in general, and certainly childish memories. And, you know, memory is, you know, this is a, this is a memoir. It's not an autobiography. So, um, it's, it's really difficult to explain what it is that I remember. What I remember is certainly things that I remember and nobody else remembers. But so many other things that I remember are things that other people remember or that other people remember different, other people being my parents and my brother. So they, the stories, you're told stories as a child. And my father, and my father especially, wrote very extensively his, his memoirs. Uh, which have then been been um, archived in 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 Manhattan at the Leo Beck Institute. So I the stories were told to me, and I don't know what was told to me and what I remember and what I remember because it was told to me, or what was told to me because I remember. It's all very confusing in that sense in trying to delineate what is a memory. Certainly, I picked up German, and uh, which even though my parents didn't speak German to us, to my brother and me. I picked up German, so in that case, I have memories of German. You know, it's it's. Um, I, I, th- that's what I remember. So I have very, very m- a few of these very clear memories and other sort of fuzzy memories. But I, right now, talking to you, I, rem- I rem- remember the the room that my parents had. I don't know exactly where my room was compared to theirs. I knew it was. Uh, divided by a, a, one of those Indian striped cotton curtains mm. that divided my parents' room from where we slept. But I don't have a clear memory of my room, but I remember that curtain. And I remember the sound of my father typing. Right. Uh, he typed, he, he wrote a memory, uh, um, 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 a novel. Oh, and, uh, you know, so I remember things like that. And I remember many, many small things. And you say, you, interestingly, that you, you learned German in the camp? Yeah, because most of the camp was divided into Germans, into anti-Nazi Germans, Nazi Germans, and Italian fascists. <laughs> so that, that was as good a, good a, 
categorization as anything. So we were anti-Nazis. And there were other Germans who were anti-Nazis. They were missionaries or they were business people. And then there were other Germans who were Nazis, all together in this camp. You know, your father apparently said, uh, asserted that the Nazis in the camp were treated better than the stateless aliens, such as your depending your on family. time, what, what, depending on, on on the on the arc of the war. Really, you know, okay. during Stalingrad was different than it was, you know, on D-Day. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and the, the, the Germans' fortunes rose and fell with what was going on in Europe. What a supreme irony that the Jews and Nazis were interned in the same camp, and the and the British authority. And the Nazis received better treatment, according to, to, to what your father said. Because the, the commandant of the camp, yeah. he was actually a Brit, but he was, um, he was you know, an anti-Semite. So uh-huh. he, liked, he didn't like the Jews. You know, based on you, your fragmented memory of that time, and thank God it is a bit fragmented, probably for your own sanity, but how do you think it affected your parents? I mean, in reflecting on them, you know, let's say 10 years hence, when you were able to uh, see, see them with a bit of more adult perspective. My fa- I think what happened with my... My father was always a very ambitious and proud man. He, he, you know, he had to really... He was the only one in his family at that time who went to university because his brothers stayed behind with the family in, in that part of Germany. They left Poland, went to Germany. My mother... Um, so he, my father was, had a very strong impression, very strong feeling about himself. I think he always believed he was important. Even when they were very poor, they were really impoverished. I mean, they were just, they were, they were suffering from malnutrition in those days, in his early days in, in Germany and in Poland. Um, but he just didn't accept it, and he always wanted to be something else. So somehow it's amazing to me that he was able to understand from this really very, very um, uh, sparse background we, as I say, he had to learn English before he left Italy, and he went to have lessons at the American, at the British Embassy in, in Rome. Uh, he learned very quickly how to be what's called, what the British Raj people called, Pakasab, like a real gentleman. He knew how to dress. He knew how to behave. He knew, he could just, he was able to understand the path. And, and, and so he, but, but all the, the, all the, nevertheless, all the time he had a feeling of, he was ashamed in many ways too, of being poor, of not having what other people had. And so for him in particular, it was very important to give his children a good education. He benefited from a good education, but he had to get it himself. His parents were not in any position to give him a good education. On the other hand, um, so he, but he felt he had to do that for his children, which is why they see, my parents sent my brother and me to boarding school in first India and then in England, because that was what was most important to them was the education. My mother, on the other hand, came from this bourgeois family, and they always had, you know, they, they were not hugely affluent, but they had whatever they needed. And she had a completely different attitude. For her, being in the camp was terribly difficult because she suddenly was there at the age of 31 or whatever she was 
with these two small children, and or she thought of herself as a student and as a, I mean, as as a as a, a new doctor because she was also a medical doctor. She had a lot of trouble. Um, but then the, some of the other people in the camp, the other, the Swiss people, German people, um, Austrian people, they became friends and they looked after, helped my mother out because they were older. But I think that then what happened is they both learned how to just be in the British Raj and then in among Muslims and Hindus, which it was before partition in 1947, when, you know, India became uh, divided into Indian Pakistan, Pakistan, and they, they, they became very quickly, they, after returning from the camp, camps, they became very quickly very leading physicians. They were one of the few European doctors, uh, medical people in, in, in Lahore, and they became very, very well thought of, and they developed a thriving practice. And with that came a whole social life. So they were always, it was a life of cocktail parties and dinner parties. You know, I mean, my early memories of my, my parents, they were always going out, you know, in fancy clothes every evening. Oh, not every evening, but a couple of times a week. And every, every invitation was a printed embossed invitation, you know, in, in written in silver and gold pens. Um, and to, you know, very, very high up government people, the queen even even had an invitation to meet the queen of England, that kind of thing. So they, they, they ascended and they learned how to do that whole thing, even though they did it always with, with European accents, what I used to call Holocaust accents. Mm. Well, I want to ask you about the issue of economic class and race mm. as it as pertains in the situation you were in with your family. But we're going to come back to that because I do want to make one observation that I, I noted in the book, which was sort of keeping a, a story going about your internment in the camp and then your eventual release. And there's this little phrase I'll read or a sentence I'll read, and I want you to comment on it. You said, when we climbed into the into the truck, and this is the truck that's going to take you away from the camp and off to parts unknown, I guess. Or, After we were on the day that we were released. Yeah. From yeah. the camp, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said, my mom and dad seemed different to me. I was only seven years old, but I know that they were afraid. And that struck me as, as powerful. And I wonder if, if for you, that was some kind of rite of passage or a loss of innocence to see your parents in that curtain of uh, parental protection sort of stripped away there for a moment. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that, that, you, that you comment on that, because I, as you're saying that, I realized for the first time maybe that this actually was, was a very important moment, because until then we were in this, in this these first one camp and then the other. I don't remember the first camp hardly at all, but I remember the second much better. And it was, it, it was barbed wire. There was, it was, there was barbed wire all around, and there were guards. We were never treated badly in the sense that we were, didn't have food or that we were abused or anything like that. But we couldn't go anywhere. So for children, it was a great place to be, ironically, because, you know, we couldn't escape. We couldn't get lost. Nobody would let us get, the, the guards wouldn't let us get past the barbed wire. <laughs> For them, my parents, that also meant that they were, for them, it was, it was not freedom, it was imprisonment. It was, it was, it was not, it was not sort of a prison, but they were not, not at least, they were not free. We felt free, they didn't. When we got into that, 
lorry or that whatever it was to leave the camp, to leave this camp of Satara, to go to Bombay, where we would end up being for six or seven weeks under in, in the care of the Jewish Refugee Agency. They suddenly, they had the, the for them, the freedom, freedom was very, very frightening because they didn't know what was going to, what lay ahead. They were, they knew they could go to Lahore, but they didn't know what it held for them. They didn't know what passports they would end up getting again. They didn't know if they could make a living. They didn't know anything, what school we would go to. They, they just didn't know. It was all very frightening and unclear. And that's what I sensed at the age of seven. I saw that they were no longer climbing into, into that lorry. They were, um, they just, they, they were almost captives all over again because they were captives of the unknown. And, um, and that's what I sensed. And the reason I say it's interesting also is that much later when I went to first time, very time uh, that I went to school and we, we went from, from Pakistan to India and we had to cross the border it's the Varga border, you just walk across. And I looked back and I saw that my parents, especially my mother, was very upset that we were leaving. We were very young children. They were sending us, I was 12 and my brother was 10. They were sending us to boarding school in India and they couldn't take us. I mean, we went, you know, with the other people from the school. And I felt terribly sorry for them. I felt sorry for them that they had to send their children to school. So really, a, a way to school. It's a very strange, um, I don't know, overcompensation. I don't know what the psychologists, other than myself, would say, would say about that. But it was, and after that, even though I would feel homesick in these boarding schools, I would feel more worried and sorry for them than I did for myself. Wow. I mean, I read the account, uh, you know, that you told you, there were, I guess, two separate boarding schools. One of them was in Pakistan, perhaps, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the one you're referring to now was, was that the one, it was called Woodstock? <laughs> Woodstock was the one in India. It was an American school run by American missionaries. At, and at, my parents yeah. sent us there because they didn't want us to grow up we, we, when we came out of the camps for the first two or three years after that, we went to school in Lahore, just regular schools, but they were convents. And my brother went to um, a thing of, of, with, run by monks and those kind of priests. But, and I went to the, to the uh, run by nuns. And so we learned Indian and British history and things like that. And we learned, we had to, we were, they wanted us to learn religion, but my parents asked us to be excused from learning any religion because they were trying to somehow keep the Jewish thing intact, even though, you know, so, so we just got zero for, I mean, I have a report card that shows zero for, for religion. <laughs> and they say, well, you know, if your children had got, um, had, had decided to take these courses, classes, they would have done better in school. But anyway, they, that along with, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the whole accents, accent thing, Richard? Yeah, well, actually, that gets into this other thing, which I'm really intrigued by, which is the uh, issue of sort of the shifting identities that you had to go through in multiple times from learning German songs in the internment camp to having your mother German herself telling you 
that she never wanted to speak German to her to her children. Mm-hmm. Then you learned this sort of, I guess, Indian Pakistan style of English, which you call Chichi. It is more sort of an Anglo-Indian style. The, Ang- the Anglo-Indians, I just heard today from somebody that there are actually only about two Anglo-Indians left in Lahore now. But they, that was a large part of, of our lives were the Anglo-Indians. Mm-hmm. They were neither Indian nor English, but, but they wanted, they aspired to being British. I see. But and they were not, you know, and they, there was a whole very interesting, there's a lot of, this new book has apparently just come out among them. So they spoke a particular kind of English, and my parents call that Chi-Chi English. It was really a lilting, a lilting kind of English, but a very distinctive, and it, it was a class thing. It was a, a particular expression of that class. Mm-hmm. They were educated in the sense they were clerical people. They kind of, or they worked in the railways, the, the Anglo-Indians, I mean, to, to simplify the story. Um, but they had this accent, and they, they tended not to intermarry, but later on, in the later years, the reason there's so few Anglo-Indians left is partly they immigrated to England, to Australia, New Zealand, and so on, but also because they then married Muslims, usually Muslims. Mm-hmm. and converted. Yeah, So, you, but you spoke in that style for... Yeah, for apparently. Two. I mean, I, would, I didn't know that. <laughs> I wish it would have been so wonderful to have had some kind of audio of those days. Really? And I, I mean, I didn't know that we sounded chi-chi, and I didn't know that my parents sounded foreign, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. didn't know so, but you, so much you, later. You, when you went to the American-style school in the, in the Himalayas, in the foothill of the Himalayas your first order of business was to get rid of that accent because your father yeah. and mother told you we don't like that so you had to switch again to a new style you had to switch to they said we're sending you to school in india to an american school so you won't speak chichi anymore <laughs> and and so that then to to prepare for that i mean they you know i i, I mean we were very upset my brother and I said, why are you sending us to India? India is an enemy of Pakistan. This is after partition. It's in 40, 50, 1950 or 59, 49. And he said, well, India is an enemy. Why are you, the, the Hindus kill Pakistanis. Why are you sending us there? Mm-hmm. Do you hate us? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. So, so they said, no, 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 no. To be better for you, it'll be, you'll, you'll learn all these things and you'll have this American accent. So then we were so, I was so confused. But some, one of their patients had given my mother a, uh, a copy of Playmate magazine. I don't know if you, you did, did you ever know about Playmate magazine? Uh, oh, no, no. What we're think, I'm thinking of Playboy. But play- no, no, no. This is Playmate. <laughs> Playmate, this is for okay. Children. It's a children's magazine. Yeah, I did not and, know and about they, it. Okay. And so, so this patient gave them, and my mother was so, please close your eyes, look at this. And so then I got some kind of subscription from, uh, maybe the patients gave us a subscription. And so I would, res- I would pour over this magazine to learn how to be an American. Because I said, okay, so now we're going to have to be Americans. So they said, you'll have an American accent. I had to learn how to do that. And it was not just the accent, but of the vocabulary. I had to learn this whole... And so I was very serious about studying for this and I would just read over and over again this magazine and learn the, la- the language and the things and the 
stories and all of that. And then some another patient gave my parents uh, a copy of the Sears Roebuck catalog. So these two, the catalog, the Sears and the Playmate, became my sort of America, American for dummies kind of thing. So I learned how, before I ever went to the school, I learned how to prep for, to try and be an American. Wow. And then the other aspect to that school, which was actually uh, actually a religious institution, if I'm not mistaken, mm. uh, was that yeah. you, you were being indoctrinated into Catholicism. And when you, your parents sort of panicked about that because it, you were getting to the point the age where that could be a, a, that could stick. So they pulled you out of there and they wanted to remind you that you do not believe in Jesus because you're Jewish. Tell me about that in terms of, here we are, we're talking about all these different styles and different identities you had to, you had to make and create and breathe life into. What was all that about? like for you yeah well you know we uh, they didn't prepare us at all for for that we would be going to uh, a christian school they just knew it was going to be american Mm. they didn't really understand it was run by what turned i think they were methodist i think they were methodist missionaries i mean i'm still in contact with some of these people i mean i've definitely contact with them but i i think they were methodists they may have been presbyterian i'm very unclear about all these christian denominations but um so they didn't really prepare us in any way that this is what we would encounter i don't think they knew if they did they wouldn't have probably sent us but then in the holidays when we came back because the school was because it was up in the himalayas we could only go to school between when when the weather permitted, which meant we li- went up in March and then we came back in November because by November the, it was too snowy and there were no proper car. It was there were no roads for cars. There were horses and stuff like that. And I mean now it's all very different, but in those days it was like that. And so when we came back, it was since there was Christmas. And, and um, the Salvation Army would come and play on my parents' lawn every year at Christmas time. And then my parents would come out and give them some wad of money for the Salvation Army. They also treated them as patients. So suddenly they were singing hymns and I would start singing hymns. And my brother would look at me with absolute despise. He despised my singing hymns. And he said, you, you're Jewish. What are you singing those hymns for? I said, well, we learned it at school. And then my mother said, you learned it at school. How did you learn it? And I said, they taught us. Didn't you read my letters? Didn't you see I used to end up saying amen and God bless and all this <laughs> stuff. So they were very, con- they were, so I was, then that, that, that was one the first year. And then the second year again. And then the third year they took us out of the school. They, they realized they'd made a mistake. And they realized that we were very confused. We didn't know. We didn't know how to be, how to confront the, the, the Christianity, and we didn't know how to be Jews because there were no Jews where we lived. There were just no Jews. We were the only one. Every now and then somebody would come through, but there was absolutely no Jewish community. So, so our Jewish identity was, was really very, very uh, minimal, mm. but we knew we were Jews. Let me just um, mention, uh, reintroduce you, by the way. We're talking with Hazel Khan, who's new book, A House in Lahore, Growing Up Jewish in Pakistan, is what we're talking about tonight. It has just been published and out available in different online outlets. 
I also want to mention that you're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM. My name is Richard Hill. So, yeah, speaking of the Himalayas, I, I just had this, you know, when I was reading that part of the book, I was like, man, you know, people fight and die to get to the Himalayas. You know, it's sort of a, like a pilgrimage. What was it like for an eight-year-old to be there? I mean, were you... Um... Well, I was 10. It was 10. Actually. No, I'm sorry. I was actually 90. I was 11 when, when I went there for the first time. Oh, is that right? Of, okay. But, yeah. Actually, before that, we'd gone to Kashmir because another thing that was going on is that because the plains, the Punjab, that we lived in the plains as opposed to the mountains was so hot in the summer, it was certainly the British made a practice of moving to the, the hill stations, as they called them, in the summer. And what happened, what usually with the wife and the, the women and children moved up to the hill stations and the husbands would come up on weekends. They were working in the plains. So my parents, what they did the, before the war, before we were interned, and then again when we came back, they went to Kashmir. They took their medical practice to Kashmir in 1946 and then in 47. And then we couldn't get back from Kashmir because of partition. So we were stuck there for another three months because war had broken out between India and Pakistan. And but the, during that time, in the second time we went there, we also were sent to school up in the mountains in those Himalayas. And then I was eight. Ah, okay. Well, then. And my uh, brother, it was just for for two months. Yeah. What What was it like for an eight year old and an eleven year old to be, to be in that kind of almost overpoweringly beautiful in setting. I mean, I'm not sure how much... We didn't pay any attention to it at all, (laughs) honestly. We paid attention to what we were getting going to eat, and our parents were coming up. We wanted them to bring us sweets and our pencil box, you know. (laughs) We didn't, I I don't, I mean, we remember, I remember the, the rain, and it was actually, and then my parents sent us a big box of peaches, because it was beautiful. I mean, Kashmir is the, was in those days, you know, it's called the Garden of Eden. People thought, people, academics thought that the Garden, Garden of Eden had been in Kashmir. And um, it was very beautiful, but, but we, we only know, knew about the peaches and stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, I paid no attention to any of that. You weren't going gaga over the scenery, I guess. No, no, nor about the flowers. I mean, my mother eventually taught me to appreciate flowers. <laughs> she knew everything about flowers. And, and, and you know, in, then when I revisited Kashmir many, many years later, I brought back some of the flower bulbs from Kashmir to Jerusalem, which is where my parents were then. Yeah. No, I was completely un, uninterested. I mean, we just, you know, just, I don't know. There was just, I don't think anybody was, I mean, I never, I've never ever, I mean, actually that's not quite true because when we were at Woodstock in the, you know, the second Himalayas, the ones of the American school, this other thing was a little British school, but the American school, we were taught a lot about the the flowers, the the natural flowers. I mean, the natural flora and fauna, well, mainly flora, not fauna. And we we were, we became ardently interested in ferns. It was everybody at the school collected ferns, and we all had these books with where we pressed ferns and you know sort of stuck them in with little bits of tape in the best botanical tradition, and and named and you know used knew the Latin names for them. So ferns actually that that was part of, but I don't think it was because they were beautiful. I think we just compulsively collected them. 
Well, listen, Hazel, we're kind of coming down the home stretch here, but I do want to ask you about whether you anything we've talked about tonight would lend itself to perhaps reading a passage from the memoir. Well, yeah, it's 266 pages, this book, and it's mm-hmm. pretty dense. As, as you've mentioned, people have said it's pretty dense, uh, Which, but uh, there is one thing that I think epitomizes, not epitomizes, but captures uh, my mother's love of gardening, my brother's sort of snarkiness, and mutual conflict about religion. And so this was when we, one of those years when we'd come back from the second or first or second semester, uh, year in, in the Woodstock school. And my mother, she loved to take us around the garden. She, you know, we'd, she'd put her arms through each of us and then we'd walk around the garden. It was a big garden and they had, she had two gardeners and all of that. And so she said, she took us in, in the winter, she, uh, she had chrysanthemums, but not these little mums that you like you get out here, but really big chrysanthemums. They, and they were her pride and joy, and she, people came from far and near to look at them. So she said, she said, how many pots do you think we have planted? My mother asked Michael and me as we walked with her around the garden. Over a hundred at least, she said, answering her own question. She stopped to sweep her arms over the potted chrysanthemums, standing proud and upright and cared for all around the driveway and the steps, their purple, pink, white, gold, bronze blooms as big as babies' heads. She was as proud of her chrysanthemums as they seemed to be of themselves. Can you imagine that Americans call these magnificent flowers mums, she said, just like they call the good old Mother Earth dirt? She patted the soil in one of the flower pots and removed a dead leaf, crumpling it in her hand and holding it under my nose. I love that smell, I said, but we are more like Americans now, so you shouldn't criticize us, (laughs) referring to the fact that she said Americans call it dirt. (laughs) You're right, you're right, but do you know what tonight is, she said, putting each of her arms through one of ours? You know what we'll celebrate after dinner tonight? The night before Christmas, Michael asked, cackled, poking me in the ribs. It's Hanukkah, the Jewish holiday. Do you remember about it, she said. Candles, but no presents, Michael said. That's what I remember. I love it. Thank you, Hazel, for doing that. That's very well read and uh, well written. <laughs> really? <laughs> totally. It's great it to hear. It's a little bit funny reading it. I don't think I've ever read anything aloud out of this book before. Oh, you should do it more often. It's great to hear it. So how do you want to wrap it up? I know Dana Ma, I guess, to the story is that you returned to Pakistan after 40 years. You returned to Lahore and you, yeah. looked, you looked for the house and you made new connections and you also explored, I think different strata of Pakistani life and society that you had not really been exposed to as a child. But tell us a little bit about the return. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, uh, my parents, the parent, the Pakistanis treated us very, very well. They gave us refuge. And for 35 years, my parents had this very thriving practice and social life and everything else. And then and they would, call, they would call, refer to us as to Jews and Pakistanis as, as, and Muslims as people of the book. We had the same religion in the sense that we, we were, uh, did not believe in Jesus and that we had very, very similar 
practices, you know, in terms of food and clothing, all this stuff, prayers, washing your hands. So, so we shared all of that. But then, and it was never a, there was never a political distinction, distinction. But that was until the Six Day War and then the, the Yom Kippur War in Israel, when being Jewish then became, as it is now, conflated with being Zionist. And then Bhutto became, uh, Bhutto became uh, prime minister in 1972, I believe it was. And it became very difficult for my parents to continue the life that they had built up over those years and that the Pakistanis had helped them build and built along with them. So they left. And I, I was by then married and had children and stuff, but I also left and, and, never, and said, we none, none of us ever thought we'd ever go back because they, we felt betrayed by then. But then after my father died in 2007, which is now 14, 15 years ago, I had this tremendous, I realized nobody knew me anymore. Nobody knew me as Hazel Selzer anymore. Nobody knew me the person who had lived in that house in Lahore that is on the, tie, on the cover of this book. And that had been my absolutely most beloved home and house. And so I'd, I wanted to go back just to find out initially if the house was still there. That's all I really, that was, I was compelled to go back. And it was a very, and I write chapters about, about going back. And so in 19, uh, 2011, I went back and not knowing even, not even knowing anybody anymore. It was a very fraught time for me, but it turned out to be an absolutely wonderful place. Uh, we were, I was welcomed. I, I thought they might hate me as a Jew. But they didn't. It was anything but. And I became friends with a whole new bunch of people who didn't know my parents at all. It was just a whole other era. And, um, and since then, I've gone back in 11, 2012, 2013, 2014. I'm sorry, 2013 and then 2020, where I gave a talk in Lahore at the Literary Festival. And just yesterday, I got an invitation to go again this January to give, to talk about my book. Somebody found out I'd written this book, somebody I've never heard of, I mean, never had any connection to. And he talked to me today and asked if I would come and, you know, consider giving a, a talk about my book at, at this festival. It's a sort of thinking, thinkers festival. It's, it's non, non-fiction festival, a book. Everybody there is going to basically be an author. I haven't decided if I can go or if it's going to be too arduous for me because I'm not a spring chicken anymore and it's a pretty long trip. But they've been very welcoming and very hospitable and they're you know, going to take care of everything for me. So I will let you know and maybe I can do a broadcast from Pakistan again. We have a phone. We have a phone. We have a microphone. So yeah. <laughs> we can make it work. Hazel, it's been fantastic to talk to you and to uh, hear you represent about your book. I love the book. I can't imagine anybody not being intrigued by it. And it's a, a wonderful, rollicking story taking us through, as I said, many, many layers of your life, but many, yeah. many geographical regions and identities and, and so many things like that. But so, Hazel Khan. Once again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. I really thank you for being a, a lovely interviewer. Oh, my pleasure. And once again, the, the book is A House in Lahore, Growing Up Jewish in Pakistan. And uh, Hazel, can they get this online? We won't mention the actual target site, but is it available on online? 
Yeah, it's in, in sort of one of the usual places, yes, that you'd expect <laughs> well, to be. <laughs> the unmentionables. Okay. Hazel, thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hazel Kahn, WPKN programmer. Her two programs are Tidings and North Fork Work.